0: Welcome to The Fifth Estate, the Wheeler Centre's new fortnightly podcast. Recorded in front of an audience in our performance space here in Melbourne, we present news without the cycle, analysis without the spin, aiming for a more measured approach to the big stories of the moment. Your host for The Fifth Estate's indispensable live journalism is broadcaster, journalist and anthropologist Sally Warhaft. Thank you very
1: much and uh, good afternoon everybody and welcome to this special Melbourne Writers' Festival uh, session uh, that's brought to you along with the Wheeler Centre's Fit the State series, which I host. It's such a pleasure to be here, especially at the Shrine of Remembrance. It's my great pleasure to welcome our two guests today as well. Christopher Clarke is Professor of Modern History at Cambridge University and a Fellow of St Catherine's College. He's the author of numerous books including the best-selling Iron Kingdom. He is a recipient of the Officer's Cross of the Order of Merit of the Federal Republic of Germany which is a huge big deal and his latest book is The Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914. Joan Beaumont is Professor uh, in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the College of Asia and the Pacific at the ANU and uh, her numerous books on both world wars include the critically acclaimed Broken Nation, Australians and the Great War. It's a comprehensive study of Australian battles, the home front and memory of World War One. Please give our guests a very warm welcome. These uh, two books together, uh, I think, give us a really masterful insight into the causes and the impact of the First World War, both here in Australia and abroad. They're massively ambitious books, both of them, um, but they actually realise their ambitions. And uh, we're here, of course, to discuss the origin and the impact of the First World War, to question the historical lessons. Uh, that we have learned and haven't learned, uh, and explore the memory, the scholarship, and the writing about something as complex as World War I. I want to start um, with a, uh, getting a brief idea from each of the, the guests here about their books, because they really are so different. Christopher's is how the First World War happened. Um, so it's, it's European and worldwide in its scope, whereas Jones is a study based uh, in Australia and uh, Australia's role. So Chris, let's start with yours and a, and a quote at the very end of your book. You say, the protagonists of 1914 were sleepwalkers, watchful but unseen, haunted by dreams, yet blind to the reality of the horror they were about to bring into the world. Tell us about your
0: sleepwalkers. Well, um, I'm, I'm glad you, you asked me about this, this term, because it, actually that, that's been one point of criticism. People have said surely these people were not sleepwalkers, they were, they were open-eyed, and, I, and I'm glad you quoted the quote, because the point the book is making is that, yes, the, the decision-makers of 1914 were open-eyed, and they thought they were making smart decisions, the smartest decisions they could make on the basis of the information they had to hand. Uh, And yet there was a mismatch between the very bounded, the very narrow rationality of their decision making and the outcome of the the systemic outcome of the the sum total of all the decision making processes occurring in the different executive centres which was of course a total and utter catastrophe. And in terms of the prizes they thought they were competing for, I mean the disaster that they were bringing about was on a scale which made these prizes risibly, you know, indifferent, meaningless. Um, so they were contesting for, you know, issues of prestige, uh, territorial um, advantage and so on, which uh, were would, would just dwarfed by the by the magnitude of the catastrophe they brought about. And there were people around who saw this. Um, there, there was a, a conservative adviser to the Tsar, for example, a man called durn who who uh, wrote a a memorandum to the Tsar in in March 1914 saying, you know, never allow yourself to be sucked into a Balkan adventure because what will result would not just be a war with Germany, which Russia will lose. The the defeat of Russia will be, you know, a a triviality compared to the revolution which will follow. Uh, The entirety of old Russia, everything we know, will be swept away in a tide of blood. So he saw very, very clearly what was coming for Russia if if it allowed itself to... (coughs) To um, invest, overinvest in Balkan geopolitics. Um, but of course, these were not the, and there were voices like his in Berlin, in, in Paris, in, in Vienna, but these were not the voices that were being listened to. Instead, it was the voices of people whose calculus involved taking the risk of war um, in pursuit of, of national or imperial objectives. And in that sense, that's the sense in which they were sleepwalkers. They thought they knew what they were doing, but they had a very limited awareness of the larger consequences of their behavior.
1: One of the things reading it too is you realize how many alternative endings there were to the July crisis, and almost all of them better than what eventuated.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it does seem to me if you think about what this war did, you know, it it, um, it destroyed four empires. I mean, that's, that's in a way the least of what it did. You know, it, 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 it killed between 10 and 15 million young men, it, it maimed and wounded possibly 20, 21 million more. Um, it poisoned politics right across the world. It, 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 it you know, unhinged the global system in ways which continue to reverberate right through to the Great Depression, the Second World War, and so on. So it's, it's just about the worst possible initial condition for the modernity that we inherited in the 20th century. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine uh, Nazism, the Holocaust, Stalinism, the Russian Civil War, Italian Fascism, all these phenomena in some sense are rooted in, the, in that catastrophe. It's a disaster from which all the other disasters sprang, as Fritz Stern, Stern put it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it was a, an appalling catastrophe, And, but we mustn't let the magnitude of that disaster persuade us that that was the inevitable outcome of, of as it were, the developments of, the pre, of pre-war Europe, because the, the, the present of 1913 was just as pregnant with possible futures as our present is, you know, uh, and it's, in a sense, important when you think about these disasters to get beyond the narratives of politicians of the of the statesmen, who are always trying to persuade people that there is no alternative to the course that they have chosen, which is often a, a you know a decision for for um, military action, in this case,
1: I'm uh, fairly certain that the word Australia is not in your book.
0: It it may not be. It's not. It may not be. It's not. I apologise for that.
2: i I, I read every word.
1: I I tried to keep myself
0: out of the book, you see. It's all about Uh, being objective.
1: And uh, it's interesting because, Joan, to take a quote from your book, it was as if the sheer scale of Australia's loss demanded a narrative of hyperbole that invested its profound trauma with meaning. So this war that began that Australia doesn't even get a mention, and yet, <laughs> and yet. Uh, what, um, tell us, well, tell us about your, about your book.
2: Well, I, I, is this working? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. yes, thank you. Um, yes, I think you've already highlighted one of the great contradictions, which is that for Australia, the war was, as, as Chris has said, an immense catastrophe. One in five of the men who went died and it uh, was the highest loss of life in any proportionately in any of the British Imperial armies and yet even though we have a I think a popular version of World War One which suggests at its at its most extreme that Australia actually won the war on the Western Front, <laughs> uh, we, the, the Australian Imperial Force was a very small part of this huge multinational war that occurred in Europe and elsewhere, and so you've got this contradiction between the immense trauma that the war um, inflicted upon Australia, not just in terms of the loss of life, but but the profound divisions that the war caused in Australian politics and society, and those divisions, I argue, shaped um, Australian um, political development for at least a generation. So you've got the contrast between that and the fact that in the end, um, Despite all these losses, Australia's contribution to the war was relatively small.
0: Mm-hmm. G- can I just add to that? Yes. One, that? was something I found fascinating about your book. That uh, uh, Joan suggests in the book that Australia emerges from this war uh, you know a less pluralistic and a less tolerant political culture than before 1914. Mm-hmm. Have I got that right?
2: Is that yes, I think there are many people who, who would argue that, and you mentioned 1913 being full of promise and, and other other possible um, endings. And uh, many historians believe that Australia in 1913 was a, a much more vibrant, creative, innovative society, particularly politically and socially, than it was in 1919. And in some way, and it's very difficult to prove this, but in some way, the society's development was stalled or truncated mm-hmm. by, by the trauma of World War I. And uh, Manning Clark, the famous historian, has talked about the nineteen twenties being the age of survivors in Australia as if somehow, you know, the trauma for the families and the men who had fought the war yeah. and the society that had been divided by the debates about conscription was so great that that it was very difficult to refine that energy and excitement of, of Australia immediately after federation. Yeah.
1: It, it's an incredible undertaking for both of you to have chosen these topics to write about because, of course, there's been so little. 25,000 works, I think, there are, on World War That was in I. 1991. Uh, there you go. You probably double that there are more now. now yeah. um, you quote um, a, a World War of Documents.
0: Mm, mm. Um,
1: and, of course, you explain in the book that every nation that took part, including, obviously, Australia... Um, whether they started or not, or contributed to it or not, had its own narrative and its own memoirs of statesmen and commanders and key players and the vanquished, the victors. Uh, I mean, it's the the perspectives, the official histories, unofficial histories, and so on. Unimaginable amounts of data that you have to select... Mm-hmm. Um, and, and use, and you also remind the reader, Chris, that there's virtually no viewpoint on the origins that can't be supported from a selection of available sources, mm-hmm. and that would also be true, I'm sure, for, for the arguments that you make, Joan. How then do you begin to write mm-hmm. a book about the origins of the First World War,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Australia's war, in your case, Joan, and each of you limited to 600 pages.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for, for suggesting that it was an act of limitation to, to, to do that. Um, yeah, of course, you're right. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, it's amazing how many colleagues in in Cambridge, um, you know, when I was writing this book, they would say, you know, people always ask, you know, what are you working on at the moment? I I would tell them, and they would say, you know, why on earth are you doing that? That's just completely pointless, which is fantastic. I have this kind of gift, just as as you're struggling with the sort of the, the monstrosities of a really difficult... Problem. They they come up with excellent reasons why you should just curl up and die. You know? um, and I suppose the, um, the, the the one thing one part of the answer to your question would be um, that you that you know you spend a lot of time playing with different structures, and you know it's the structure that's the key thing. You know, finding a structure which will um, which which will with a sufficiently capacious sort of architecture to um, incorporate as much as possible of these conflicting voices, but not to drown out the conflict not to suggest that there is a, a single true view, but to allow voices to speak, speak, you know, uh, against each other in a kind of chorus of, you know, dissenting positions. Um, that seems to me to provide a <coughs> richer mix than simply, um, you know, picking documents that support a particular viewpoint, which is a, a, a feature of a lot of the, uh, not all, but quite a lot of the literature on the outbreak of the, on the cause of the First World War. The other thing I did was I tried to... Um, to change the question, rather than deciding in advance, I'm going to have a different answer, uh, which would be entirely the wrong way to proceed, because I didn't actually, honestly, didn't know what the answer was going to be. I um, I, I just knew that I didn't understand, how, I didn't feel I understood how this war had come about. Uh, but then what I thought I'd do is ask the question, how did the war come about, rather than asking why? Because if you ask why, you, you get pulled in the direction of large abstract and rather remote causes, you know, the rise of nationalism, imperialism, arms races, um, the spread of social Darwinist um, thinking and so on, whereas, um, and you trawl the whole sort of, you know, the decades of the pre-war for developments which are anticipating this war of 14 to 18, and in doing that, you create an optical illusion which is that this war has to happen, you, know, you pile the causes onto the scale and with each new cause the scale tilts from a possible war to a likely war to a highly probable war to an inevitable war and in doing that you squeeze the agency of all the people who chose this war and brought it about, out of the, they get squeezed out of the field of vision and that seems to me a really um, a fundamental error and a moral error as well about wars because. Wars don't, are not like um, volcanic eruptions. Wars are politically chosen by, by people who have political power. And uh, a very important part of my, my you know, um, sort of objective in writing this book was to restore that, that whole process of choice um, and, and to give everybody who was part of that process. And they weren't all in Berlin or all in Vienna. Um, they, were, they were distributed very widely across a range of different executive decision-making senses and to give them all the places that were in the story.
1: Well, it's remarkable how, in doing that very simple switch from why to how, uh, that you come up with a very, very a, a story that is different, that is actually new um, in what it's offering, um, but incredibly, as it should be, complex, reflecting uh, what you know, the, the, the complexities that were there. Joan, it, in your selection, tell us about the selection of your material and, and how you came at your your book and whether or not colleagues, I don't imagine in Australia they'd say, oh, what, what are you doing that for? They'd just say, thank God, there's not enough. Um,
2: well, as, uh, as you mentioned, there is perhaps between 25 and 30,000 books on the origins of World War I. There is estimated to be in the last decade, I think, over 150 books in Australia with the word ANZACs in the title. And, uh, and I guess what I was concerned about and was that although there's a great deal of literature about um, the Australian imperial force at war, it didn't seem to me there was much that looked at Australia's experience of war. And I think, to many people's surprise, only a minority of men actually fought in World War One from Australia. Perhaps, um, perhaps between 35 and 40 percent of men between 18 and 45. So the majority experience for Australians of World War One was the experience at home, and that somehow I thought got lost in in much of the story about the Anzac legend and the way in which Australia remembers World War One. So I wanted to write a, a book which integrated the battlefronts and the home fronts and uh, and I concluded that in many ways it's helpful to see them as being in a kind of dialogue with each other uh, particularly in terms of the impact of what was happening on the battlefront at home and uh, and I was particularly influenced by a book that Raymond Evans wrote about Queensland, and the, and I think that we we lost track of, lost sight of the extraordinary violence within the political debate within Australia, particularly during the conscription debates and an event which has been almost completely forgotten, which was the Great Strike of 1917, mm-hmm. and and that violence seemed to me to be attributable to an eruption of, of great grief and. This was a generation that felt it really had to repress its grief, um, to be stoical, and indeed to rejoice in the loss of, of a son or a brother for the cause of the empire. And yet, I don't, you know, people were deeply, deeply traumatized by the losses. And that all seems to me to have come out in what remains the most divisive political debate in Australian history. So really I was trying to look at the, the, the interaction between the battlefronts and the home fronts. and then I threw in a bit of memory as well because I'm particularly interested in the question of how today we remember the war in a very different way to I think the way that the people who fought the war and lived through the war experienced it and what they thought they were trying to achieve. We've forgotten a lot of that. Well, you, um,
1: there are sections of, uh, with each major battle in Australia about how the memory and the commemoration has changed or come about. And what you know I didn't realise was, of course, the battles that we focus on today are not necessarily the ones that were important at the time and why they become important mm-hmm. is absolutely fascinating. And... In, in a in a subtle sort of way, this mirrors some of the acts of forgetting and remembering, Chris, that you um, use throughout your book as well. About what's deemed important in a in a certain time is not necessarily looked back at in hindsight uh, as as what was important. So you you both really grappling, I think, uh, very successfully with with memory and. Um, trying to look at things sort of straight. The, the Gallipoli, I uh, don't quite know what to call it in Australia, thing uh, <laughs> uh, is quite difficult for me to understand. Um, the commemorations being put in place for next year are staggering. Uh, the issue, just the issuing of tickets for the event at Gallipoli will cost half a million dollars. Burton Newton will narrate it. <laughs> Darrell Braithwaite and Kate Sobrano will perform. Uh, they've got everything except Don Bradman and Father. <laughs> and it seems to me so far away from this idea of silence. Um, again, the only thing that shuts Australians up is actually that minute of silence that we had wherever we are <laughs> on Anzac Day. What is going on, John?
2: Oh, well, we could talk for a long time about that, and indeed Chris and I had coffee discussing uh, why Anzac is so important today. And, of course, one of the things that some of its critics would point out is that there are many different ways of, of narrating Australian history, and that some of those alternative narratives seem to have been pushed to the margin by this recent resurgence of the interest in ANZAC. I mean, one of the other stories, of course, is what I've already mentioned, which is this huge experimentation in political and social reform mm-hmm. that occurred uh, particularly when the Labour movement was so dominant in Australian politics. Remember, the Labour Party was once the party of the left. And, <laughs> um, but but some, I mean, I think we have to start in trying to under, in, when we're trying to understand ANZAC by acknowledging that this so-called memory boom has happened across the world. Yeah, um, it's absolutely. happening in every country that it, um, is commemorating World War I. And most people would trace it back to um, the emergence in the 1970s as a very dominant discourse about the Holocaust. And uh, then in Australia's case, it somehow seems to have become linked to perhaps a need for some kind of um, narrative that has a kind of a spiritual dimension in a secular age on the other hand, you might, and it depends what your political persuasion is, attribute a lot of the resurgence of the um, commemoration surrounding Anzac to the needs of governments who are seeking to invest their contemporary policies with a legitimacy. And one of the things that I think I really had in mind when writing the book was to make a clear differentiation between memory and history. And a lot of what we hear about Gallipoli and Anzac today is actually memory. Very little of its history. It's about, and uh, I don't mind the word myth. I mean, you called it the thing. Um, <laughs> I, I like a, an anthropological definition of myth which says, the myth a myth is a story about the past that justifies and validates the institutions of the present. So I think you can only understand Anzac today because it continues to um, in, emphasize and validate particular values which at least certain sections of Australian society think are important. Courage, mateship, sacrifice,
3: and so on.
0: Can I just add to that, I mean, this is a a question, well, first of all, to to, second what you said about how this is not just happening in Australia. I mean, in Britain there's been an extraordinary effort by government to recalibrate the memory of 1914. And to sort of drag it out of the clasp of the BBC yeah. and, in particular, Blackadder Goes Forth, sort yeah. of, <laughs> which, which, of course, is one of the ma- most magnificent monuments of, of um, comedic memory of 1914 we could possibly imagine. I mean, it's extraordinary that they've attacked this this you know um, just the sacred monument of, of British popular culture on the grounds that it foregrounds the futility and meaninglessness of the uh, meaninglessness of the war, as a sort of a meaningless carnage, and in an effort to restore kind of the political meaning of the They the, the the government, and by that I mean the education secretary himself, Martin Gove, has now been sacked. But he was then education secretary. He demanded that you know Britain should uh, learn again to be proud of the of the achievements of 1914 to 18, and pride should be a dominant part of the of the emotional mix and so on. So this is not just happening in Australia. It's mm-hmm. happening uh, worldwide, as you say. And just thinking about the Anzac myth, the question I have about that is, I mean, th- this is a a, a war, the, the memory of this uh, conflict presumably is something which resonates more in some parts of Australian society than others. I mean, you make the point in your book that the, the crimson thread of kinship which, which you know, um, accounted for that powerful sense of um, alignment with empire, even in 1914 was, was something that was, in, you know, present in very different, at very different <coughs> levels of intensity, because even in the Australian society of then. But today's Australian society, presumably, the, this memory of, of um, Gallipoli is, is the property of a part of Australian mm-hmm. society. Is that true? I mean, there must be yes. Australians who don't feel connected to this.
2: Well, this is, uh, I think, an interesting point because you do read a lot in the press about how many people go to Anzac Day Dawn services, how many people have sought to go to the uh, service next year. You hear about growth in numbers, but. Um, The fact remains that this is a minority of the Australian population that is actively engaged in ANZAP commemoration, and to me the unanswered question is, how widely does this particular memory of of war resonate in Australian society? And about four years ago, the Department of Veterans Affairs, which has the responsibility for managing the uh, centenary of Gallipoli next year conducted two focus groups uh, to try and find out what the Australian public expected of the centenary commemorations. And the first focus group they did was largely, it turned out, with Anglo-Celtic, well, Australians of Anglo-Celtic extraction. And they said, well, look, we can see Anzac as being a focal point of unity, perhaps, in Australia, but it also had the potential to be very divisive because it is still a story about white men, basically. And so then they conducted a second focus group and deliberately chose Australians who came from non Anglo Celtic backgrounds, Chinese, Vietnamese, Indians, and asked them what they thought about Anzac. Now, it was only a focus group, but it was very interesting because the responses were that uh, people who were recent immigrants to Australia from um, other cultures were more than willing to acknowledge the importance of the Anzac legend in Australian society and were respectful of the fact that it meant a lot to many Australians but felt quite disengaged from it. The only groups that were an exception to that were the Turkish Australians, who of course have a great investment mm-hmm. in Gallipoli. And for some reason the Sudanese Australians I didn't explain why they felt that an interest in it. Um, and to me it's going to be interesting to watch once we've had we've had this orgasmic commemoration next year um, of, of Gallipoli, what will then happen? Will there be a kind of fatigue almost with the, the commemorative activities? And as Australia becomes you know, more diverse, continues to become more diverse demographically, mm. will this legend continue to have its hold? Mm. And I personally, and people become a bit sort of naive in suggesting this, I think the future <coughs> Anzac Day resides in it becoming a day that commemorates the loss of all Australians, whatever their background, in war, not just um, Mm. the particular stories of of the National Defence Forces. Mm. Because so many of our immigrant population (coughs) are coming out of war zones. Mm. They've experienced war. They've experienced different wars to the ones that are commemorated in ANZAC. Mm.
1: Let's put you in charge. (laughs) (laughs) But
2: let me say, I mean, that may be naive, because ANZAC has always been, as um, Bruce Capra once put it, legend uh, a myth of state I mean it's got a very mm. strong alignment with the development of nationalism and and uh, the official defense analysis. well
1: one of the things I'd love to know is, is how you think this as this mythos of Gallipoli affects our defense culture today how it affects the way we we go into war today as Australians yes well
2: um, I have argued that I think one of the functions the the narrative serves today is to make it difficult to critique the particular deployment of Australian forces. This was very apparent during the Iraq War of 2003, when the majority of the Australian population actually was opposed uh, to Australia's being involved in that conflict. But as soon (coughs) as the uh, deployments had been made, the government essentially presented the argument that it was very difficult to critique the soldiers who were fighting the war, <coughs> it being said, well, the Vietnam veterans suffered such um, criticism by virtue of the fact they fought an unpopular war and it wasn't their fault. So <coughs> there's a kind of problematic dialogue that goes on. And says you can't criticise the men and women who are fighting the war because they're doing their duties, but that means you can't criticise the war. And um, that's, I think, one of the ways that um, Anzac plays out in today's society and politics. On the other hand, James Brown's has recently published this extraordinarily interesting book called Anzac's Long Shadow, and he's arguing that the the way in which um, Australia remembers um, the Anzacs is a problematic for is problematic for today's defence forces. It's almost um, stopped them thinking critically about how they fight and, and what their values are, and that's been a very influential book. It's <coughs> a book, US, and,
1: and also uh, the, the um, soldiers that we look after the dead now better than we look after the living uh, returned
0: mm. Uh, mm. soldiers. And can I just add to that, that this, this discussion reminds me a little bit of something that the French historian Pierre Nora said about the relationship between history and memory. He said, memory kills history. Um, the, two, the two things are necessary, we need to have history and re- critical reflection of the past and we need to remember the dead, but the two um, are like oil and water, they, don't, they can't occupy the same space and they exist in an antagonistic relation and, um, and you know, when, when you hear official statements in Britain, for example, to the effect that Britain went to war in 1914 for freedom or for democracy, um, well, that's a claim that simply isn't true. For say, Bengali lancers who who also fought in in northern France, or, or Sikhs, or or Gurkhas. In what sense could they be said to be fighting for democracy? So um, you know, it's a, hi- history throws up complexities which memory finds it very difficult to digest. And we have to have we have both things in our world, and we have to have them. But we have we need them both. But we need to um, manage the relationship between them.
1: You argue, Chris, that that some of the intricacy and complexity I'm quoting here, some of the intricacy and complexity derived from behaviours that are still part of our political scene. Mm. uh, You you described writing the last part of your book during the height of the European financial crisis, Mm. um, a present day event of baffling complexity. Uh, In uh, and you say, in this sense, the men of 1914 are our contemporaries. Mm. Talk us through some of the what we haven't learned, uh, but also obviously points of difference.
0: Well, this is one of the weird things about 1914 is it's that you know um, when I first encountered this subject as a, as a schoolboy in Sydney, um, 1914 seemed like ancient Egypt. And you know we, we read the, the these wonderful popular histories by Barbara Tuckman. You know the, the Guns of August and the Proud Tower. And, reading those I mean there's a lot of detail about uniforms and court etiquette and um, and you know all sorts of you know a sort of loving attention to detail which pushes this story back into the remote past and makes it feel like a period drama but actually if you if you think about it from the perspective of our of our present- day world then it feels very close I mean 1914 uh, the, the the key players were operating in a very multipolar very unpredictable context where um, trust even between allies, even among allies, was at very low levels and and was completely absent between antagonists. Um, where, uh, you know, it was very difficult to read the intentions of other states, um, where levels of paranoia were high, there was a kind of fear of long-term decline, a sense that one was operating against the clock, and so on. So. Um, in many ways, 1914 is more contemporary now than it was during the Cold War, when when the world operated under very different rules. You know, disciplined by a kind of bipolar stability, if you like, despite the terrible proxy warfare of that of that era. Um, now we're back in an era of multipolarity, so it feels much more. It, it speaks to us much more urgently than it than it did then. And the relevance of the eurozone crisis. Well, that had to do with the fact that you know, just as I was finishing this book. Um, you know, Europe was plunging into this, this terrible crisis over the Euro, management of the, of the single currency. And what was very striking was the fact that everybody knew that there was a potential catastrophe, you know, the, the meltdown of the currency, the collapse of the European project, at least of its, um, of its you know, financial dimension. And, um, but that common awareness of catastrophe was not enough to discipline the egoism of the individual nation-state actors. Who used the fear, the generalized fear of catastrophe, as arguments for their own, to pursue, with which to pursue their own interests, um, and it seemed to me that kind of, um, you know, incapacity to think in terms of the interests of the system as a whole, was, um, you know, that there are analogies there with the situation in 1914, where everybody knew this can end in a general conflagration, but that was not enough to, to you know, discipline the, the egoism of the particular. Decision-making centres. So, what struck me about that was slightly depressing. That it doesn't seem to me we've necessarily become a politically more intelligent species um, since 1914. And it's very important not to look at the decision-makers of that era as if they're the sort of protagonists of a completely bygone era. Um, you know, with with nothing to tell us today. You know, people we can dismiss because they, they were they were the prisoners of very backward ideas that we no longer. And no longer part of our reality. It seems to me they're very like us and we're very like them.
1: Uh, it is depressing. Joan, I want to ask you the same question about what Australia has learned apart from having now a Prime Minister who can tell us there are good guys and bad guys.
2: <laughs> well, um, clearly today, um, Australian foreign policy and defence policy is shaped by a very different. Um, one of the things that that took Australia so enthusiastically into World War One uh, was, of course, a loyalty to the British Empire, which now and to white Australia, which both values of which now we don't don't um, are values we don't embrace. On the other hand, Australia is still very very closely linked into a wider alliance network and. Uh, and I think, um, you know, we have, and I'm not original in saying this, you know, to some degree just shifted our loyalty towards the United States, and it really is striking to me how little debate there is now about uh, the, the degree to which that alliance arrangement um, suits our current national interests. The, the US alliance is more or less taken as a national interest in its own uh, right. And if we look at the uh, possible analogies between 1914 and 2014, I mean, Chris has already highlighted some, but I think there are many people who feel there is a resonance, particularly because what we're witnessing in the Asia-Pacific region today is a comparable shift in the balance of power as mm-hmm. was going on in Europe in 1914, particularly the rise of Germany and the imminent rise of Russia. And, and to me, one of the interesting... And perhaps alarming issues about today is what do what do states which have been um, are used to being what you might call top dog or hegemonic powers do when their relative power is being challenged? And uh, this was an issue for Britain and for other states, Austria-Hungary in 1914, and it is a real issue in that region. And in particular, we hear a lot about what China is planning and, and China's intention to assert its new economic power. Politically and strategically, but to me, my, if we look at 1914, what's just as important is what do the powers whose power, the states whose power, is being challenged do? You know, what will the United States's response be mm. to um, to the rise of China? And that's why there's a lot of debate going on about is 2014 another 1914?
0: can i just add to that that's very interesting i think and you know makes me think puts me in mind of graham allison's um conceit or his idea of the thucydides trap and he was referring to the, the you know, great greek historian who in trying to account for the outbreak of the peloponnesian war said you know it was the fear of the rise of athens um and the fear of the decline of sparta which brought this war about and um allison you know has counted. I think in in all 15 situations since the year 1500 AD when there's been a shift in the balance of power and he says that in 11 out of these 15 um, situations the result has been a major war. So, um, you know, those aren't great odds, Um, (laughs) but and the question that arises, you know, are we going to be smart enough to handle um, shifts in the balance of power uh, globally without conflict? you know and there are indications that we might might be able to be that we might be smart enough but there are other indications that we might not be
2: I think also when you asked what has changed and I I think one of the, the really sobering lessons of world war 1 and and later conflicts has been the willingness with which ordinary people respond to the call of the nation to go to war I and mean, 62, I mean 330,000 of them in World War One, from a population of 4.3 million, went to serve. And so, were, I pose the question in my book: Would, would today's democracy be able to, to fight this kind of conflict? Would you find enough men and women who were willing to volunteer, and, and would you find enough Australians willing to tolerate the casualties of World War One? I doubt it, but then I sometimes wonder, you know, the power of nationalism seems so strong and if we were in another major crisis, would would it be possible to imagine Australians responding with the same enthusiasm or at least the best willingness to die that they did in 1914 to 1919? One hope, I mean, I guess I hope not, but then um, the power of of na- Nationalism does seem extraordinarily strong.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, have we got microphones for questions? I yes, think? we are ah, Fantastic. Um, if, if you would like to ask a question, please put your hand up and uh, somebody will put a microphone in it.
0: Um, a- a- am I right, of the declaration of war, uh, there was a strits, uh by most of the uh, belligerence. Um Why was that? And then, how long did it take for, as it were, the things to change? Because everyone expected to be home by Christmas, I believe. Well, that's a very interesting question. There's, there's been a lot of atta- a sort of revisionist attention to this notion of, um, of war enthusiasm in the uh, in the opening days of the, of the conflict. The cheering in the streets is something we see in all the photo documentation, photographic documentation of that era, because it's part of wartime propaganda. I mean, weeping women, for example, are not, don't tend to make their way into the newspapers. Um, the Czech women who lay on railway lines to prevent their sons from being taken off um, to the, the front um, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, for example, they never made it, they were never photographed, never became part of the visual record. So there's a lot of other emotion happening. I mean, in, in Russia, people, there's a there's very interesting um, accounts which refer to which say that in the, in the villages um, of Russia, you know, one of the main sounds you could hear was weeping. The men and women weeping at the prospect of, a, of another mobilization uh, because they could remember the war against Japan, which had been so appalling and had nearly you know, destroyed um, the, the, the entire Russian polity. So, um, you know, jubilation isn't the only emotion. Uh, it's the one that makes it into the headlines. And um, it's an urban, it's a phenomenon of the urban educated intelligentsia of students, um, people with a kind of stake in, in the public sphere of the nation state who are, who are you know, throwing out their hats in the air. And as you say, you can, you can see these scenes everywhere. There's a, a marvelous pair of photographs showing crowds in front of Buckingham Palace and crowds in front of the Schloss in Berlin. And they're almost identical crowds because these are Europeans who look very similar. And they're throwing into the air Almost identical hats. These are the hats, which, sort of boaters. They would play boaters, basically. These are the hats which were in in um, in fashion in in 1914. So, um, people were cheering. But um, but in all these uh, societies, it's a small minority that's cheering. Um, the ones in front of the camera. Um, the rest of in the rest of society, it's bafflement, bewilderment, surprise, astonishment that this war has happened. I mean, there are a lot of um, contemporary diaries and memoirs which say that you know. Um, my you know I remember just re- re- reading last week a wonderful memoir by a, by a Hungarian graphic artist, a young man who was called up in, um, in the autumn of 1914 and he said, you know for everybody I knew aren't all my circles we thought a war of this kind had of just had become an anachronism it was unthinkable. We thought a big war was an absurdity um, and so for them you know for many people most Europeans the war came as a storm from a clear sky, a clear sky. And there's an interesting book by a man called David Nuremberg which makes this point very clearly. That um, it's called The Dance of the Furies, I think. And in that uh, book, he expands on this and shows um, how astonished and bewildered most Europeans were by the news of this of mobilizations. Um, one of my favourite stories is it relates to a Cossack village um, in out near the Urals, in some a place called Semipalatinsk. where. Um, The news of mobilization arrived on on horseback. There was a a Cossack riding with a a blue flag, which is the signal of mobilization. And an announcement was read out that Tsar is mobilizing the troops. He's calling you to the front, and so on. The Cossacks all cheered. Ray, it's it's, it's war, we're ready to fight. And then people asked themselves, um, who we actually fighting against and um, this chap said ah let me just check here. oh God, it doesn't say it doesn't say it says mobilizatia, mobilisatia it doesn't say it through and they say oh and then it then, then starts a lot of uh, kind of guessing games ah it must be China it's China we've gone too deep into China and they finally wage war on us well they finally said war on us it's time to fight the Chinese and then uh, this goes on for a couple of hours they think it's China it's China and then somebody says no it must be our old enemy and they say who's that and it's England <laughs> it's England. We're fighting England. So that gives you a sense of how far most people are from, you uh, know, from understanding the processes of decision making that actually brought this war about.
2: And I think both of us say in our books that the idea that it was all going to be over by Christmas is 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 not really substantiated. Uh, uh, even in, in the Australian press, there was a recognition that it was going to be a dreadful war. Um, and uh, They obviously didn't expect it to go for four years and and to be uh, as devastating as it was, but there were many people who understood what had been evident even in the American Civil War that the weapons of a a modern industrialized state were going to bring about tremendous destruction. Mm. And uh, to me, the most interesting question is not the first rush to enlist about fifty two thousand Australians volunteered by the Christmas of nineteen forty. It's why people are willing to go after that when they know what this war is. Mm. One a couple of two French authors have called it the mystery of the second acceptance. Mm. and I actually start my book with my great uncle who we went in December nineteen sixteen and he was thirty one. He knew exactly what, what his odds were. And so that to me is the most profound question. Mm. When it's not a short war, why do people continue to be
0: willing to volunteer. And you think of a country like Italy, which enters the war in 1915. They know exactly what they're getting into, and they have a war you know, just as bad as everybody else's, mm-hmm. with endless casualties on the horizontal front and so on. Um, but it's not enough to put them off. It's, it, mm-hmm. That is a, a very important question.
2: Um, I'm um, struck by the fact that uh, Obama was quoted recently as um, saying he got frustrated with, why does everyone want to go to war?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, he, uh, he was quoted as briefing the journalists on, on Air Force One. He said, Look, basically, it's about not making, doing dumb shit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting to me with, with the film, this discussion about memory and history, that the other thing is we seem so readily to forget the horror of war, perhaps because so many don't want to talk about it, uh, and the, 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 the lack of. Mm, uh, participants coming back and not wanting to talk about war, has that contributed to our to our ignorance and uh, our willingness to continue this um, stupidity? Mm. Well, I think it's fair to say that the way war is remembered in much of the commemoration nationally today is a very sanitized version of war, and uh, sometimes a very sentimental version of war. Um, so you never see you know, really graphic images of the effect of, say, a shell on a man's body. Um, and you go to something like the Afghanistan gallery in the Australian War and it, you know it's a story of suffering, but you never quite know why it's happening. It's it's really almost decontextualised a lot of our our memory of war today, and certainly. Um, If you look at the way in which recent wars were reported through embedded journalists, much of the the true um, horror, the physical horror of war has been airbrushed out of the story. And certainly as a young student, I was profoundly influenced by the photography that came out of the Vietnam War. I'm sure many in this audience remember some of the most graphic images of the Vietnam War, and yet there's been almost nothing comparable coming out of Iraq. Um, so we, I think we, we have a, a somewhat sanitised report in the war
0: today. There's some, quite, there's some quite interesting anthropological literature on why it is that in situations where hawks and doves argue against each other, the hawks often win, um, especially in environments uh, where, where, there's a, where there's a potential to stir paranoia and anxiety and so on. Um, hawks seem to have the better arguments. to say they don't necessarily have better arguments, but their arguments seem to carry more... Psychological sway than the arguments of doves. You know, the arguments of doves are often, we, hang on, let's, let's slow down, we don't have anything to worry about. But the hawks, by enumerating the things we do have to worry about, create a kind of climate um, that, you know, seems to feed itself. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're, 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 those are interesting studies. That hawk arguments tend to, you know, they just tend to work better in psychologically stressed conditions. As in nature. As in nature, yeah.
1: Uh, Interesting too, Joan, that I don't know if this happens elsewhere, but uh, a a very peculiar thing in time, I would have thought, where you have a prime minister, or at the very least, a very senior level uh, of minister uh, for some years now attending every single military funeral.
2: That's been a a relatively recent phenomenon. And, of course, it's only possible when you have very low levels of of deaths, as Mm. we have had... In Australia's case in Iraq and Afghanistan and I do know um, as you mentioned I'm in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre, not the most natural home but I, I do have good colleagues there and many of them have very strong connections with the Defence Force and I know there is some unease um, and James Brown brings this out in his book at this extraordinary um, reverence for individual deaths now don't misunderstand me I mean clearly that is a tragedy for particularly for the families involved but the degree to which there is a, a kind of political mobilization around every death is a is a really interesting um, aspect of, of um, national commemoration today mm. Julia Gillard for example had to come home from an international conference when five Australians were killed in Afghanistan and I happened to be talking to one of her staff, and I said, well, why? And he said, well, she could not afford to be seen to be in a Pacific Island resort on that day, and that to me um, uh, raises the whole question of what role the popular press plays in in this particular uh, commemorative practice. But we've also had it around the, the victims of M-17, I mean people have commented mm. on the similarity of some yes. of the rituals that are surrounding… Um, operation uh, them operation bring them home. Operation yeah, bring home, yes, yeah. and it's got a kind of military connotation, so it's almost as if the fewer the deaths, the more the commemorative ritual that surrounds um, mm. those uh, those burials and funerals.
3: Firstly, yes, I apologise, Chris, I haven't read your book yet, but I'm
2: currently at, at the end of Paul Ham's book, 1914, mm. and uh, uh, I found the parallels
1: quite fascinating over the last two months reading it. It was 100 years ago on the day I was reading it, so mm. it was very fascinating. Um, I do ask that same question that Sally asked. Uh, I think Australia was mentioned once and that was in the appendix regarding the number of deaths. Otherwise, I doubt that I saw it in that book also. Mm, mm. Um, Sorry I was, about that. was also been, <laughs> uh, concerned when I read about the barbaric actions of the German army when they invaded France. Mm. just could not believe what I was reading at the time. But then
3: you go and turn the TV on and you see the barbarity
1: that goes on in current days. So you really do wonder what we've learned. I guess my big question out of the book and the history of it is the three cousins leading the three protagonists in this war, why did they allow it to happen?
0: Well, sometimes as a, as a, as a, I was just going to
1: say you have to buy the book because it's all in there.
0: Well, it's, it's funny people sometimes say to me, "How how could Europe go to war when the when its its heads of state were all related with each other?" and I think people who ask that question have clearly never been at a family Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, but I suppose the, a more serious answer to your question would be that. You know, these heads of state, are, they're, they're very important symbolic persons. I mean, there's no question when Edward VII goes to Paris and sits down in front of a hotel smoking a cigar, people think they're looking at England, you know, in a, in a suit, basically. And when, the, when, the, when Saint Nicholas comes to Paris, he's, he's cheered, although he's, of course, he's an autocrat and something absolutely abhorrent to French Republican political taste, yet he's cheered because he's the embodiment of the alliance that is the, the, the keystone of French security. So these people are symbolic persons, but they're not necessarily the people who are pulling the wires. And the same thing applies to the Kaiser in Germany. You know, you know a, a larger-than-life figure who, whose every utterance is recorded and remembered, but but who in fact um, was one actor among many, and who was in many ways sidelined during the key decision-making processes of 1914, who is put on ice effectively. So, um, you know, the answer to your question would be that these characters, important as they are, um, actually aren't the ones making the decisions, and they've been. Absorbed into national bureaucracies, nation-state or imperial bureaucracies, um, which are making the decisions.
2: Can just ask a question of Chris. Mm-hmm. I mean, to save you from your embarrassment of not mentioning Australia, yeah. um, I have heard it said that um, that when the British government was going through those agonies in the last days before the war as to whether they should intervene mm-hmm. or not, and there was great uncertainty and chaos in the British cabinet and divisions. That the fact that the Australians and the Canadians and the New Zealanders put their hands up to support Britain was one of the things that encouraged the British cabinet. Well, this is isn't it? Yes, I mean one of the things: um, the Australian decision to go to war was not a decision that was made by the British government on behalf of Australia. But the day before the British declaration of war on Germany, the Australian government had made the decision to, to send. An expeditionary force. So, mm-hmm. does that does that give a green light at all to the British government, or are we just priding ourselves and giving ourselves undue significance?
0: No, I think it, I think it's important. This is the point that's made in Douglas Newton's mm-hmm. new book, *The Darkest Days*, when he looks at precisely as you mm-hmm. described it, at the profound divisions within the British political elite over intervention in this war, and it, it, it really tore the heart out of the liberal movement, basically, the Liberal Party, and it were, uh, it was a moment from which liberalism in, in Britain never really fully recovered. Um, but I think he's right that um, that there are all kinds of early early signals that um, of readiness for war, and they, and they have in part to do with the empire. I mean, one of my favourite examples is a telegram from Barbados, which says, "Onwards and upwards, Britain! Barbados is behind you." <laughs> <laughs> which I think is, you know one of the most stirring documents from the, from the early, early days of the war but um so the, there is an imperial dimension to this and there's also the 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 empire the imperial warning telegram, the, the the warning to be ready for war um, which goes out um and which douglas newton sees i think rightly as, a, as an example of how quickly britain moves towards escalatory measures or is, is willing to risk escalation um, and he, he also cites Churchill's um, very early mobilization of the Navy before the Germans have even issued the so-called um, warning of impending war, the, the, um, the statement of impending war. Um, so, you know, uh, these are basically observations which are important because they put Britain back into the picture as a power among other powers, you know, contending with other powers and trying proactively to meet risks before they actually eventuate. Uh, and thereby helping to sort of escalate the, the you know, uh, march, uh, force, force the, the pace of the of the crisis, if you like, along with everybody else. I mean, Britain's not alone here. The Germans are doing it, the, um, the Russians are doing it, the French, too, in their own way. We've got time for one more. I thought that was a clock, but can
1: you give me a two-minute warning?
0: Yep. Thank you. Professor Clark, uh, I was just wondering, has, uh, how uh, has, the sleepwalk has been critically received mm. um, in the Anglo-Saxon com- countries compared to Germany or Australia? <coughs> well, well, thank you for that question. Um, it's been, I mean, I, I, I can't complain about the reviews. I've had lots of wonderful reviews, but I've also had some stinkers. Um, and in, in Britain, um, the, the hostility has come from, you know, the thing is that there are, there are people who, this is a topic in which a lot of scholars have invested their entire lives. I mean, there are people who've been specialists on the outbreak of the First World War, that's how they started, and that's what they've been doing all their lives. An example would be John Ruhl, the, the, the author of the magnificent biography of the German Kaiser, who has dedicated his entire life to showing that you know Germany um, not only brought about this war but planned it in advance, um, and so on. Now, that's that's not a view that I share, and in fact, it's not widely shared. But. You know, um, people like that have responded to the book with extreme hostility. I have to say, um,
1: this upstart Aussie who comes along yeah, and blasts yeah. all these things. Exactly. Who is, more more who is this Australian guy? Who is this More Australian exceptionalism.
0: Exa- well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think, um, yeah, they just don't get it. Really, they sort of think, who, who, you know, what, 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 How can, how can he be doing this? And uh, I, I bumped into John Ward not so long ago, and he said, how can it be? You know, you've looked at the sources. I've looked at the sources. How can we have come to different conclusions? Um, well, I mean, that's history. That's the way history works. You know, um, and we apply different, we, you know, we look at source in different ways. I have to say, John has never looked, you know, one of the problems with the literature on the First World War is it's been very much a nation by nation literature. So a lot of people have focused on the case for German culpability, the whole, the whole Fritz Fischer thesis, as it used to be called in the 60s, um, a thesis about you know, Germany's role in the Rush to War. And it's not that Fischer got it wrong. I mean, he was right about the belligerence, the paranoia. The aggression of the German decision-making elite, um, but he was only interested in the Germans because the question he was asking was how far back can we trace the roots of what came later, National Socialism, Nazism, the real catastrophe in modern German history. Um, but the, the problem with that approach is that once, if you look for belligerence and aggression elsewhere, you find it there too. I mean, St. Petersburg, you know, Russia's policy, not just in 1914, but 12, 13, 14, deliberately stirring up the Balkans. Um, you know, placing the future of Austria-Hungary in question um, by turning clientizing Serbia, trying to turn Serbia into an instrument of Russian geopolitics—all of that contributes to the to, to you know, the building up of risks. Um, as well, and the French are doing their own risk building; the Austrians, their own, of course, um, and on, on various occasions, even the British in, intervene in a way that escalates crises. Um, so, you know, um, it's a complex picture. the the, the German response has been um, very politicised, I mean, by and large very warm reception Um, but there have also been some attacks from the left, um, from German scholars who feel that putting in, you know, in any way diluting the German's sole responsibility or chief responsibility for the outbreak of this war puts in question, um, in some mysterious way, Germany's guilt for the Second World War. Now, I can't see the connection myself, I mean um, I don't think that thinking again about 1914 uh, has any implications for the war of 1939 which clearly is a a morally highly polarized war in which a regime with a fundamentally exterminatory political content launched a war of extermination on the rest of Europe. Um, So I just don't see the connection. The the First World War was born in a completely different world where these monsters hadn't yet been born. In fact, they're they're made possible to some extent by by the catastrophe of the First World War.
1: We're out of time. I'm, I, I think our hour is up, isn't it? I for that we completely. We're right on 4 um, o'clock. said
3: we can have one more. Just one more. Um, thank you very much uh, for the informative discussion this afternoon. Uh, I, I just wonder, you both touched upon the different yet very similar circumstance today and also governments, the way governments handle and commemorate war as well as the reaction of their populations uh, at the outbreak of the war and how popular memory suggests something else because looking at pictures it's a different view to what had actually happened at the time. Uh, Would either or both of you hazard a guess in terms of the advent of not just uh, reporting by media organisations or by governments that is possible today, um, how the populations would actually react to a decision by their governments uh, in today's circumstances and whether the governments would actually even take any notice of it as they have not at the time.
2: Well, it's, it's widely assumed that... Um, Western democracies today are casualty averse, that, that there isn't the tolerance for large casualties. So that presumably would act as a constraint and of course in Australia's case, uh, we, if we were ever involved in a conflict in the Asia-Pacific region, it's highly unlikely that it would be a mass army such as, as was um, Deployed in World War One. I. I mean, one of the most important things to remember about World War One is that these were huge armies exactly. involving you know, vast mm-hmm. masses of civilians. One of the reasons why the ANZAC legend has proved so durable is because it, the AIF were citizens in arms; they were not regular armies. Mm-hmm. So I think I think today it's hard to imagine the capacity of, of the Australian government, at least, to mobilise kind of support across the whole of the Australian society in the way that it did in 1914 to 19. And I don't know if Chris wants to comment on this. It seems to me one of the differences between today and 1914 was that um, the armies of 1914 didn't seem to have much what we call flexible response. They mm-hmm. didn't have a number of different kinds of military strategies. Many people would be very critical of the clumsiness with which the mobilization of one army then generated the mobilization of another. And one would hope that in any contemporary crisis today there will be much more graduated responses um, Mm -hmm. before the ultimate catastrophe which today
0: would be nuclear war. Well, can I just speak up on that last point and say that uh, I think there have been some shifts in political cultures. I mean, um, you know, if you look at how European leaders responded to the Ukrainian crisis, for example, uh, about which they're very concerned, but um, restraint has been the dominant self-restraint, critical reflection. You have, you know, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, the German foreign minister, noting in the sort of early hours of the crisis maybe we got it wrong with Ukraine we got too involved in the internal affairs of that state the EU made a mistake there Um, we needed to take into account more fully the, the interests of Russia and so on Uh, There are others who have been very critical of of anyone who seeks to understand Russia's interests. But, you know, so it remains, you know, contentious. But there's a a dimension of of self-reflection and critical self-awareness, which is completely lacking from the protagonists of of 1914. And to that, I just add that, you know, the technological environment is also so different the capacity to project very large amounts of force by remote control uh, at, over a distance. If you look at the you know, American deployments against um, you know, the Islamic State forces in Iraq and so on, um, and the use of drones uh, and so on, and if Martin van Kueyfeld, the sort of geopolitician geopolit- and um, theorist of war is, is right, then that's going to be the future. The future will be on the one hand, the option of nuclear war, which we hope will never occur, um, and, but as a kind of warning against major deployments, and on the other hand, you know, very nuanced um, deployments of, of actually very forceful and destructive um, weaponry uh, at a distance, but with high levels of accuracy. Um, admittedly, always at huge human cost. Um, so that I think is likely to be the future, rather than the massed armies of, of 1914.
1: I have to uh, wind it up because I know some people, including me, have to be at other sessions at 4 o'clock. Uh, I want to thank very, very much our guests. It's been a fantastic conversation, just thank absolutely am- fantastic. And if you're going to read one book on the First World War, read both. <laughs> uh, exactly. They, they really are, I mean, they're, they're, they're masterful and they are really great companions together. If you really want to be all up to speed on everything you need to know in this centenary, it's going to go on for four years, read these two, you'll be ahead of everyone else. (laughs) And uh, please thank these wonderful guests.
2: (laughs) Subscribe to the Fifth Estate Podcast for your fortnightly taste of provocative and considered
0: news analysis. And for a full program of talks, visit wheelercentre.com.